Sweethearts like your two people. I'm in love with one of them. I wish I could take care of you, but... Hello, hello, I'm Katie, and welcome to Retromade, your pop culture rewind. We are going back to December of 1983 for the 40th anniversary, yep, 40, of the release of Silkwood. And since this movie is mysteriously unavailable literally anywhere, you're stuck with me, just me, today. Our everyman, Kurt Russell, is joined by Meryl Streep and share for this movie based on a true story and got a lot of award attention, and rightly so, which we'll get into. But before we open the time capsule like we usually do, I wanted to sincerely thank you for listening or watching if you watch on YouTube. Be sure to keep in touch with me and all the things nostalgia on our Facebook page, the Retromade Facebook page. We're actually, I'm currently in the middle of a Christmas movie recommendation streak, I guess you could say. I do also want to hear from you, so please reach out with any feedback and remember that email address is retromadepodcast at gmail.com. I'd also very much appreciate a rating or even better, a review, if you can spare a few minutes. And hey, if you're new to the show, welcome! I cover retro movies, TV, and pop culture because, uh, let's be honest, it was just better back in the day. So now let's all reminisce together by opening the time capsule from December of 1983. Now, in the time capsule, the first thing we usually cover is the popular primetime shows based on Nielsen ratings. But we've already covered this season, the 83 to 84 season uh, in Red Dawn. Was it Red Dawn? Was it? Yeah, 80, 83 to 84 season we covered in Red Dawn. So go back and listen to that episode, or if you really want to hear more about that primetime TV from that time. But there were some new shows that I do want to touch on uh, for this season because they are all now 40 years old. We have He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Yep, 40. 40, guys. Inspector Gadget. Webster. Kids Beat. If any of you remember Kids Beat, I uh, spurred my memory a little bit. I do now recall this. So it's a series of uh, these one to two minute televised news segments that summarize topics um, like, I don't know, sports, current events for kids and preteens too. And it's likened to CBS's In the News feature. And the segments were hosted by kids. So broadcast in the U.S., on TBS. That was one of my favorites from back in the day. Um, I loved all the stuff they had on TBS. Uh, Turner Broadcasting System. So this Kids Beat started in 1983 and it went into the mid-90s. And it was on weekday afternoon, like kids animated TV blocks. So like Inspector Gadget was probably on one of these blocks, uh, animated blocks after school. It ran until 1997. So that's Kids Beat. Does anyone remember this? I didn't until I was reading about it. So, Kidby. And then also premiering this year, turning 40, is Mama's Family. I do actually want to expand on Mama's Family a little bit since we've already covered um, the rest of the TV before we kind of move on to the music and events. So, 
this was so much a part of my childhood. Um, who else watched Mama's Family? Again, it's like the, the theme song offers that just like comforting, familiar, you know, life from a simpler time feeling. Mama's Family, which I'm sure most of you know, but in case you weren't aware, it this is actually a spinoff. The series Mama's Family is a spinoff of a recurring series of comedy sketches, um, and it was called The Family, but it was on the Carol Burnett show, which ran uh, from 67 to 78. I don't think I realized it was on that long. And then also Carol Burnett and Company, which was on in 1979. Those sketches led to a TV movie called Eunice. So the character, Eunice, played by Carol Burnett. And then finally, the television series, Mama's Family, that we're covering now. So again, it ran on NBC uh, from 83 to 1990. You guys, I don't remember it going until 1990. Uh, it's like the first two seasons are very different from the latter seasons and maybe why that is. But it's it's uh, set in this fictional town, Raytown, um, Missouri, which is it's fictional. But it's supposed to be sort of like a Kansas City suburb, although the writing definitely skews more Southern. And even some of the write-ups about the show talk about its Southern nature, although technically Missouri could kind of one of those cuspy states. But either way, it's very Bible belty. And the show revolves around Thelma Harper, affectionately known as Mama, and her quirky Southern family, like I said. The series humorously depicts Mama's interactions with her outspoken relatives and neighbors. Mama is known for her sharp wit, no-nonsense, and wisecracking ways. Her humor often takes the form of sarcastic rem remarks and clever one-liners, adding a comedic edge to the show. Mama's quick tongue and sassy attitude contribute to the series' comedic charm as she navigates the ups and downs of family life in her own unforgettable style. So that's kind of the little description of the show. Please tell me you guys are all familiar with Mama's Family. I know it seems like, oh my gosh, the, you might recall it as like super cheesy 80s show. And it is, but it's like very much of its time. Like the style of writing, like I said, it comes from the sketches, from a sketch show. And you just have to go with it. If you take it for what it is, it's super fun. Plus, you'll see why some of the cast um, are very near and dear to me. So we this show is created by Dick Clare, Jenna McMahon. Directed by mostly, so there's like four main directors for the whole series, which I think is impressive. We have Roger Beatty, Harvey Corman, who was actually in the cast as well. We'll get to him. Dick Martin and Dave Powers. It even won uh, the Emmy in 84. Bob Mackie. Yes, that Bob Mackie. And Rhett Turner won for costume design. They were also nominated in um, 83 and 87. So Mama is Vicki Lawrence. So you all know Vicki Lawrence. Um, she, while she was playing a widow in her mid to late 60s, any guesses how old Vicki Lawrence actually was? I mean, I know, yeah, they make her look old, but she was 34 playing Mama in Mama's Family. And um, so she's known, I swear she wears like the same outfit in 
every episode, but she always wore that like a short sleeve, purple dress, pearls, and those god-awful knee-high stockings. Iola Boylan, the neighbor, mama's best friend, is played by Beverly Archer. Ken Berry plays Vinton Harper. He is mama's, I think he's the youngest son, but he's her adult son who lives with her and his new wife. And he's just a total man-child, bumbling idiot, Vinton. Anyway, he's super fun. And then Dorothy Lyman plays his wife, Naomi. She's probably my favorite character. Uh, So she's Vinton's wife and who Mama's always, uh, why, you know, we talked about her wisecracking and one-liners and it's like always joking about like what a hussy uh, Naomi is because she's very sexualized and wears like all these off-the-shoulder dresses and outfits and stuff. Now, Dorothy Lyman, if that name sounds familiar, and I knew I loved her for lots of reasons. So she's an, um, been in a lot of things. She's um, been in the business for a very long time. She's not only an actress, but a director as well. She directed 74 episodes of The Nanny, one of my favorite shows. Ah, I love it. Um, and then here's where we get it with the, the, the kids and some of the other cast. So. Baba is probably who you guys most are most familiar with. The kind of cute, like lovable jock idiot um, grandson of Mama. He's Vinton's nephew, not Vinton's son. He's actually Eunice's son. And he doesn't come into play until season three. Um, The show was actually reincarnated after the first two seasons And then it became even more pop and and run on different networks. A a whole backstory that's kind of boring, so we won't talk about that. But Bubba is played by Alan Kayser. And then the next two people play Benton's kid uh, from his first marriage. And they're only in the first two seasons. So Buzz, which is Benton's son from previous marriage, he's played by Eric Brown. And Sonia, uh, the daughter from a previous marriage, is played by Karen Argold. Then the next slew of people are um, some of my favorites. <laughs> They're also only in the first two seasons. So Harvey Corman, as we talked about, he's also the director of this. He plays Ed Higgins, who is Eunice's husband. And then we talked about Carol Burnett, who plays Eunice. She's actually Thelma's daughter and Benton's sister. The other sister, the other daughter, is Betty White. Yep, Betty White, she plays Ellen. So we have Eunice, Ellen, and Vinton are the three kids of Thelma, Mama. Then we have Aunt Fran, Thelma's sister, played by Rue McClanahan. Okay, so Rue and Betty, they actually left to go be in Golden Girls together. Um, Let's see, the other thing I wanted to touch on is that Rue is playing Betty's aunt, right, in Mama's family. But Rue is actually 12 years younger than Betty in real life. Wild, huh? Uh, Anyway, it's a super fun show. You can currently watch it on CMT, Logo TV, and MeTV. I love it. Nice little slice of comfort for some old-timey, simple, fun. Watch Mama's family. Ain't you hitting the sauce a little early? 
I may have had a couple of beers out on the front porch to cool off Mama, but it didn't work. What are you talking about? Daddy's sapphire ring. Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> All right, everybody, we are ready to begin. The ride is ready. Everybody take your seats. Take your seats. That ring belongs to me, Mama. That was promised to me, Mama. When I was a little girl, Daddy used to hold that ring up to the light, and he'd say to me, look, Muffin, look, look at the star. Oh, for pity's sakes, Eunice, he never called you Muffin. <laughs> he said, look, Muffin, look, look. On yourself, Eunice, or I'll kill you. <laughs> Looks like you write all of your promises in disappearing ink, old lady. <laughs> like the time that you promised me when I was 12 years old a two-wheeler. Well, I have yet to see that sucker. <laughs> but Ellen, Ellen, every time I turned around, there was a brand new Schwinn sitting under her fat fanny. <laughs> I was a straight-A student. I earned every one of those bikes. You never earned a thing in your life. All you've ever done is weasel. You weaseled a new Cadillac and you weaseled a rich husband. And then you laugh at me behind my back because I got a dumb cluck like Ed. Now you wait a minute here. Oh, who pressed your button, you goon? I couldn't be rich if I wanted to. Oh, shut up, Ed. Hell, you just, what are you going to do? Go through the whole family in alphabetical order? No, I for mama and for the millions of times that you promised me things and you broke them and now today is the last straw. Here you give my daddy sapphire ring to Tinkerbell over there and, and his recycled bride. Why don't you go soak your heads in Clarisel? <laughs> Okay, there's another phenomenon uh, from 1983 again. So we're going back to December of 1983. So we're Christmas shopping, Black Friday. Does anybody have a guess what like the toy was and what a wild craze it caused? If you're thinking Cabbage Patch Kids, you're right. Mine I think her name was Sonia. I actually tried to Google a picture of her and I couldn't find it. I have her somewhere in a tote downstairs in my mess of a storage area. Anyway, so yes, these were dolls that came with birth certificates. And there was like a tattoo on their butts um, of the creator, Xavier Roberts. Right? So this was like... a. The first year of the frenzy and Black Friday riots for like all children wanted this Cabbage Patch craze. And we'll get to like how wild it was. Okay, Again, we're in 1983. So this is consumer madness that exemplified this era of Reagan America. Um, So we have it's actually you wouldn't I don't think you guys will know the brand name. That's why it's sort of unlikely. It's a story. So there's like a $2 billion Cabbage Patch empire that was spawned by this soft-spoken artist turned toy tycoon, Xavier Roberts. 
What a cool name, by the way, Xavier. Anyway, um, his his business began when he created a doll hospital in Georgia called Babyland. It's actually still operating. Um, P.S. There's actually, I don't know if it's still going on post-COVID, but there was like a little doll hospital, not a Cabbage Patch one, but just its own like mom and pop shop um, along one of the streets that my friends and I used to go brunch at. So we'd walk by it all the time and we're like, who's going to this? Anyway, Doll Hospital Babyland, Xavier Roberts started that. Where dolls were born among leafy green fields and cared for by nurses. What a premise, right? But everybody wanted a piece of that. So the demand for Cabbage Patch Kids was apparently so high that when they went on sale in 1983, the supplies actually ran out. And the company that made the dolls, you ready for this? Colico, C-O-L-E-C-O. I, that means that rings no bells for me. They actually were charged for false advertising, which is, you, you got to be pretty blatant for that in, in 1983, because we've talked about deregulation during the Reagan era. Anyway, so they actually ran commercials for a product that was not available. So I think that's why they were charged for false advertising. And then, so then they make this announcement about having to pull commercials because of that. And that just created an even bigger craze and demand for the dolls. Um, the other thing that they did that most other toy companies weren't doing at the time, some inventive things with their advertising, um, like marketing dolls to boys. They made boys. They made boy dolls and marketed the dolls to boys as well. Um, yeah. So the release of the Cabbage Patch dolls coincided, like we were talking about, with the FCC lifting restrictions on running toy ads during children's programming. So suddenly, we have this complicit and very direct relationship between toy companies and kids. And not to mention, this is 1983, guys. You have to remember that the power of TV and TV advertising was incredibly high because there was really nothing else. There wasn't YouTube or any other screens of any sort that were vying for our attention as kids. It was the TV commercials. And they really blurred the line between commercial and programming. So anyway, this is all like this perfect storm for the Cabbage Patch Kids. So then the phenomenon in stores over this holiday season, I was, some, I was reading some articles about it. So people were saying it, that it felt unprecedented at the time. And a store owner literally wielded a bat to try and calm down crowds trying to get Cabbage Patch dolls. There were tears, bruises, screaming matches. Um, I don't know. It was like this was going viral in 83. Everybody wanted it. They even took one into outer space. Like astronauts took a Cabbage Patch doll into space with them. Police were called in one instance to, at least one instance, to dispel a disturbance at a Toys R Us in uh, Huntington, New York on November 25th, 1983. Uh, it was actually one of the first toys that was able to open it up into that level of consumerism. And, you know, it, the 80s of it all, right? Consumerism, society, cultural, and it just kind of speaks to where we were in the 1980s. They were incredibly expensive for the time. So I looked up uh, the price in 1983. So although the retail price was 25 because of all $25, because of all the demand, a lot of stores were upping the price to $50. And then there were like secondary black market sales of these 
Cabbage Patch dolls recorded as high as $2,000. In today's money, that would be $76 retail, $152 for the upped demand pricing, and black market pricing would be over six grand for the toy that your kids were begging for at Christmas. So thank you all you parents out there for braving the chaos and the craze that was the Cabbage Patch Kids in 1983. All right. Music. December 1983 feels very 80s, you guys. So the week of December 14th, the number one song is Say, Say, Say by Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson. Number two is Say It Isn't So by Holland Oates. Lionel Richie has the number three song with All Night Long. And then Billy Joel has the number four song with Uptown Girl. I think this is maybe one of maybe my favorite Billy Joel song. It's pretty good. I'm not like the biggest Billy Joel fan, but I remember Uptown Girl being awesome. And if memory serves, is this where he meets Christy Brinkley? Was she in that video? I could be totally wrong. Um, I could be totally wrong, but I feel like that's right. Somebody let me know. Duran Duran, how 80s is uh, the number five song with Union of the Snake. Love is a Battlefield by Pat Benatar. Ah, that's a song again, like it gets played. This is a 40-year-old song now that still gets played regularly on like popular radio stations. Owner of a Lonely Heart by Yes. I think that's a one-hit wonder. I've never heard of Yes, but I know that song. Then the number eight song, Islands in the Stream, the duet with Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton. What a great one. That's a really good song. And then I sort of didn't remember any other songs that Olivia Newton-John sang other than um, Physical. But the number nine, she has the number nine song this week with Twist of Fate. And then Culture Club rounded out the number 10 spot with Church of the Poison Mind. There's quite a bit. So there's like a lot of weddings. Okay. In December, I don't know if, I don't know. That must be a popular month for people to get married. December. Uh, the Rolling Stone, Keith Richards, marries model Patty Hansen. They are still married. So that's pretty cool. They actually met at Studio 54 on her 23rd birthday in 1979 and then got married a few years later. Wrestler Hulk Hogan weds Linda Claridge. They stayed married for a long time, but, you know, a reality TV show will almost certainly do your marriage in. So they divorced in 2009. Uh, Parker Stevenson, one of the Hardy Boys, marries Kirstie Alley. And we talked about them um, because they were both in North and South. So we talked about them in the North and South episode. They were married during the time of that filming which was in 85. They got married in 83 and they divorced in 80 later in 85. So they didn't stay married for very long. Um, Loretta Swit, the actress from MASH, married American actor and attorney Dennis Holohan. Is it Houlihan? Holohan? He played the banker in Scarface. 
but he's an attorney. Um, they divorced in 1995. The band The Who disbanded in December of 1983. That was big news, apparently. I don't know if anybody remembers that. Uh, Kentucky's first female governor, Martha Lane Collins, was inaugurated. Go Kentucky! This is both shocking and congratulatory. All right. Now, big movie releases in addition. Actually, I don't think... I don't think that Silkwood was like this big movie release. No, actually, now that I'm saying this, I know that it wasn't. It had a limited release in December and then was more widely distributed probably in January. So it's not included in our big movie releases. From December of 1983, we have Sudden Impact, Terms of Endearment, Scarface, 40. All these movies are like 40 years old now. Yentl, Two of a Kind, Christine, Uncommon Valor, and the re-release of The Rescuers. All right, let's get into the movie. Silkwood. December 14th. Today, if you're listening to this, on the day of this episode's release, it is officially its 40th anniversary exactly. And yes, it was more broadly released in January of 1984. So I'm sorry. Yeah. It's rated R. It got, it's over two hours, but it didn't feel like unnecessarily long or anything. The IMDb rating is a 7.1. We have director Mike Nichols, who's very well known. He is probably most known for The Graduate for which he won an Oscar, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Working Girl, The Birdcage, as well as, I didn't know this, helping to start Second City Improv. Go Mike Nichols. And then writers Nora Ephron, who's known for movies like, writing movies like When Harry Met Sally, Sleepless in Seattle, and You've Got Mail, and also Alice Arlen, and Alice is most known for Silkwood, probably, uh, but also Cookie and The Weight of Water. So those are our writers. We have a wonderful cast here. I'm going to skip forward and then come back to the cast. The score, I want to point out, because it's I really did enjoy the music. I think it was very helpful for this particular film. It was done by a French composer, um, Georges Delarue. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly or not. I do not speak French, but he was a French composer. Tons of credits, over 350. In fact, he won an Oscar for A Little Romance in 1980. And a French newspaper called him the Mozart of cinema. I might have to agree. It was really nicely done. The description will help us with our cast of characters. So I have a feeling that a lot of you have not seen Silkwood, or if you have, it's been a very long time because you cannot find this movie. It's very hard to watch. So here's the description for you. It's a fairly accurate recounting of the story of Karen Silkwood, the Oklahoma nuclear plant worker who blew the whistle on dangerous practices at the Kerr-McGee plant and died under uh, some strange circumstances. 
Karen Silkwood lives a free-spirited existence with her boyfriend, Drew Stevens, and friend, Dolly Pelliker, who also worked with her at that Oklahoma nuclear facility. It's only when she discovers that she's been exposed to radiation that Karen's conscious awakens, and soon she is digging for evidence of wrongdoing, but her sudden zeal for safer working conditions may come at a high price as she alienates her friends and possibly even puts her own life in peril. We, of course, have our Kurt Russell, our everyman Kurt Russell in this. That's why we're covering it. But he's not the star. The star is Ms. Meryl Streep. She plays Karen Silkwood, and she is phenomenal in this. Kurt... He's just, I feel like I'm never going to not like something he does, but he's wonderful in this. And then the friend, Dolly. So Kurt plays Drew Stevens, her boyfriend, you guys. And then the friend, her friend, Dolly Pelliker, is played by Cher, who is almost unrecognized because she's like no makeup, very like drab clothes. We'll get to that a little bit later. But Cher was so good in this, you guys. Then we have Craig T. Nelson playing Winston. He works at the plant, and we don't like him. We see him doctoring some negatives to hide some wrongdoing. Diana Scarwind plays Angela, Dolly's girlfriend. So Dolly is a lesbian. Uh, so yeah, it's just wild to share. Play. Yeah, just, you guys got to see it. Share not all glitzed and glammed. Anyway, so Diana Scarwind was actually, the name might sound familiar to you, and she's recognized, you'll, you'll notice her. She was nominated for an Oscar in her small supporting role in Inside Moves, and then also for a Razzie um, for playing Faye Dunaway's daughter in Mommy Dearest. So that's who Diana Scarwind is. Fred Ward uh, you all know him. Um, he's kind of one of those guys. He's like a that guy. He's a very handsome guy. He plays Morgan in this and he's in the union, like the labor union with Karen. Um, he's known, you, you will also see him in Escape from Alcatraz, The Right Stuff, also Uncommon Valor that we talked about also was a big movie of this time. And Swing Shift, which... Is Kurt also in that? I know Goldie is. I think Kurt's also in Swing Shift. You guys, I'm, I shouldn't have said that because now you're probably questioning my cred for doing the season with Kurt. I have a bad memory. Okay. Then Ron Silver. You all will know him too. There's a lot of those guys in this movie. Like our top three are just phenomenal. And then the supporting cast really does support them well. Ron Silver plays Paul Stone. He's one of the D.C. union leaders. So Meryl and some of her union people locally travel to D.C. There's some scenes where that happens, and he plays one of those guys. He's also in a ton of stuff. But if anybody saw the TV show from the late 90s, Veronica's Closet with Kirstie Alley, he plays her love interest in that, Alec. Then Charles Hallahan. He plays Earl Lapin, who's like, I don't know if he's a real, they call him like a veterinarian. So I don't know if he's actually like a real D or not, 
he plays the doctor role at the plant. So if somebody gets contaminated, there's this whole process. You basically have to scrub them down in a shower and he does some readings and stuff. So he's the doctor there. And we talked about him on the thing episode because he plays Norris in that. He actually plays cops a lot as well. You'll see him in a lot of cop things. And then the other DC union leader, Max, is played by Joseph Summer. I think it's Joseph. It might be Joseph because it's spelled with an F. Anyway, he is a classically trained stage actor. He plays Rothko in Dirty Harry, Schaefer in Witness. And if you saw X-Men The Last Stand, he played the president in that. So that's who he is. Then we have Sudi Bond. She plays Thelma, who is the she's an older lady that is works at the plant and is friends with Karen, etc. She actually gets contaminated in the movie. Now, Sudi, the actress, died a year after this movie came out in New York. Yeah, so she died shortly after this movie came out. Henderson Forsyth plays Quincy. He's the union leader at this plant. He's best known for his 30-year run as Dr. David Stewart on the long-running American soap opera As the World Turns from 1956. Wait, did As the World Turns start in 1956? Wow. He won a Tony Award in 1979 for his work in the original Broadway production of The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. E. Catherine Kerr, or Kerr, plays Gilda. She's another plant worker and friend. She's not super well-known, but she has played judges in several TV shows. Um... And she played the attorney general in the movie The Siege. That's where you might know her. And then Bruce McGill plays Mr. Hurley. He's part of the management at this plant. And he's a super familiar face. You all know him. <laughs> I thought this was kind of funny. So he played D-Day in National Lampoon's Animal House from 1978. And he didn't, he took that role out of desperation, apparently, as a young unemployed actor. And it ended up being his most well-known role. But he does have a long acting career. Um, like movies like Wildcats, The Last Boy Scout, My Cousin Vinny, Cliffhanger, Time Cop, The Legend of Bagger Vance, and The Sum of All Fears. Tons of stuff. And then lastly, we have David Strathairn as Wesley. And he's another plant worker and friend. I did not recognize him at first. Because he's so young in this. I'm not used to seeing him so young. I can picture his face now. And he's a very handsome older man. And he's been in tons of stuff. You all know who David Strathairn is. He played uh, Edward R. Murrow in Good Night and Good Luck. And then the Secretary of State in the movie Lincoln. Those are like some of his starring roles. And then he's in lots of TV stuff as well. And like The Blacklist, Alphas. And even three episodes of The Sopranos, one of my favorite shows. Uh, now, this movie did make money, and it was a pretty small budget at $10 million. It made uh, $35.6 at the box office, so pretty good. We did talk about at the beginning that it's got a lot of award attention. I would like to talk about that for a moment. So there were, let's see, one, two, three, four, five Oscar noms. Meryl Streep for leading actress. She also got a BAFTA nom for this particular movie. 
Now, Meryl Streep being nominated for leading actress in this. It was the third of three films released in successive years for which Meryl was nominated for the Best Actress Oscar. The first was in 19, like literally 81, 82, and 83. The French Lieutenant's Woman. I have not seen that. Now I'm going to have to watch it. And then Sophie's Choice. She was just coming off of Sophie's Choice to do this movie. So she got three years in a row. I think she won, actually, for Sophie's Choice. Then we have Cher was nominated for an Oscar for Supporting Actress. She was also nominated for a BAFTA. Mike Nichols was nominated as the director. The writers for their screenplay, Nora Ephron and Alice Arlen, were nominated. And it was also nominated for Best Editing. Now, Cher won the Golden Globe for Silkwood. She was really good. Meryl was too. They were both actually, yeah, like the three, and I'll talk about this probably throughout those three, I call them the trio. Their relationship is so beautiful. Like I, they're the French, I, oh, I love it. That's like the reason to watch the movie in my, uh, let's see. It was also nominated for best drama at the Golden Globes. And then the other, so Kurt, Meryl and Mike Nichols were also nominated for Golden Globes. Tons, tons. Okay. Like I said, gosh, I really want you guys to watch this because it is really good and it's now 40 years old. Uh, and it's about an important topic. It's based on a true story. I feel like it was one of the early movies like it of its, of its time and a lot of similar movies have come. Uh, but it's hard to get. Like, it, you can't get it anywhere it's not available to stream so i looked on amazon to buy it and it's like 60 bucks for a used copy because <laughs> they're out of print so i requested it from my like library's network you know how libraries have like a network even if your library doesn't have it so it took a minute to get here but finally it did i'm just in time for me to record this episode i don't know why it's uh, actually I did see a Wall Street Journal article from a couple years ago about like it's some weirdness with the distribution. So Silkwood was distributed by a company that was later bought by Disney. However, when they reached out to Disney about this, they couldn't say for sure if they owned the film. So it's one of those that kind of fell through the cracks. So it's literally not available. But I, but please, you guys get it from your library and watch it. Please, please, please. It's a phenomenal story. And from a story as well as character development perspective, it's really well done. Okay, so we are set in 1974. And it opens with this beautiful rural setting and a little two-door Honda hatchback driving, like off the dirt road. And we see the three main characters driving to work together. And there's this beautiful music you know, overlaid this opening scene. And then after it plays for a little bit, it adds this, um, it's a recognizable tune too. this banjo over it, which, which is also really nice. It's just such a nice way to set the stage of this movie. And when we're introduced to the characters, it's evident that both Cher and Meryl, I do this when I cover movies, I say their real names as opposed to their character names. So Cher and Meryl, AKA Karen, and Dolly. They speak with a little bit 
of an accent, but it's not over the top. So like I said, we're in, it's in Oklahoma, uh, like a small town. It's not like one of the cities. It's in a small town in Oklahoma. We, it's just, again, like the first part of the movie, so good at character and story development. We see how they all interact with their coworkers and how their everyday life is very simple, but they're so happy and it's comforting and they have these close friendships. They're all, you know, just, it's quite lovely. (laughs) I can't help when I see movies. There is so much smoking in this, you guys. I know it's kind of of the time, but you literally, they were always smoking and you can smoke anywhere, everywhere, anywhere and everywhere. The other thing that I took major note of was the cars. So we talked about that little hatchback that Meryl drives, Karen. But all everybody else is just the cars in this. I think that's, I love seeing that because, you know, it's nostalgia. Hey, you're on Retromade. So I like retro things. Kurt's hair, you guys. He has such a good head of hair. It's before the 80s mullet comes into play. Great hair. Meryl looks stunningly gorgeous despite god her hair is awful does it's like a scraggly mullet i almost want to say a la mrs brady but it's like her that's very kept like a shag mullet with real stringy scraggly long bit it's horrible so despite that awful hairstyle uh i don't know if that was a thing in certain parts of the country and in the 70s it's awful but meryl still she's just gorgeous and then Cher, like i said you, if i didn't know it was Cher, i wouldn't know it was Cher. you know what i mean so it, it's maybe a stretch that she's unrecognizable but it's just wild because it's so the antithesis of the share that we know she's in this playing dolly she's always in her clothes are all utilitarian no makeup. She doesn't do anything with her hair. I mean, I don't, yeah, somehow she's still like share. I don't know. Somehow she's still like kind of attractive. So all three of these are trio, Kurt, Meryl, and Cher. I did look up when they were born to see how old they were when they played these characters. And they were all in their mid, I'm sorry, Early to mid thir- mid thirty, so I think Kurt was actually the youngest at thirty two ish, and then Meryl and then Cher might have been thirty six ish. So that's how they were. And then again, like kind of setting the stage for the story, the house that the three of them live in. So Karen and Drew are boyfriend girlfriend, and Cher Dolly is their friend. So the three of them live in this house together it's on a country road it's a bit run down okay and again this is oklahoma 1983 when we see karen and drew's room there's wood paneling and a confederate flag above their bed it's drew's flag because uh spoiler later in the movie he moves out and we see his new place and it's in now there But it's wild because there are so many other ways that are, like, surprising for someone who would have a Confederate flag in their home as decor. But I just, it was, I had to do a double take. Um, But I do have a little story about that, actually. So this is a night, so, again, this is actually the, I'm sorry, it's not in the 80s. It's actually in the 70s. 
while the movie came out in 83, the events of this story take place in 74. Well, 2000, I don't know, 19, I want to say, I went to a small town in Oklahoma for, it was for work. So I was there for a work thing. And I was at this bar. Of course, there was nothing for me to eat there. <laughs> um, cool. But I go to the bathroom. Like, I, I go to the bathroom, and on my way there, I see this man, probably about my age, too. Like, there with, like, his family. He's a burly, bearded man. But his outfit was head-to-toe Confederate flag. Like, it was a... uh like tracksuit of sorts, Confederate flag out walking around in 2019. Hey, that's my story about a Confederate flag in small town, Oklahoma, many, 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 many years later. Anyway, so I don't know. Maybe that's still a thing. Who knows? Um, I don't know. But moving on, we get a lot more of the closeness of our trio. I just love it, you guys. That's the reason to watch this movie. These actors playing these three people, it's so good. So, again, we're just developing the story. There's not exposition. You know how a lot of movies do that? No, we just are shown things, and then we kind of see who these people are. And that that's really what I love. Like, it gives the audience the benefit of the doubt. Like, it doesn't assume that we're dumb, <laughs> you know. Anyway, so we get further evidence of how close this these three people are because... Karen is a mother of three. She's divorced from her common law husband, and he lives in Texas with her three children. So Karen is from Texas and she moves to Oklahoma. This, we don't we're not we don't know why she doesn't have custody because it's kind of odd, especially at that time for the mother to not have custody um, and they're little kids so anyway they go to texas to visit karen's kids all three of them like up for a road trip and it, there's a cute scene where drew is like hey dolly you're not gonna come down there with us she's like what is there to do there he's like nothing she's like yeah all right it's just really cute that they, they go with their friend to see her kids and we can just assume that she doesn't have custody because she's the one that chose to leave the state maybe but there are three very small children like in three to six like boom 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 and there's a cute scene of her interacting with her kid and the and the, and drew and dolly all being there so now they're coming back home so we see that scene we come back home to oklahoma and karen is starting to actually get worried about cancer because at the plant their co-worker thelma got contaminated and in the movie this must be lingo for like plutonium and nuclear plant. They call it getting cooked. Thelma got cooked. Or if your hands have or contaminated, they'll say you're hot. Your hands are hot. So that's just a, the terminology that they use in the mom. So Karen's starting to get worried about that. And Drew says to her, there's so many sequences of their relationship. And I love it. It just shows them to be just normal. Just Nothing over the top, but just the, there's a lot of little things that they do that is like they're just a sweet, loving, normal couple. And I love it. <laughs> but Kurt, as Drew says, if you're really worried about it, stop smoking. Which 
I thought that was hilarious, smart, and also kind of surprising for 1974. I mean, I'm sure they all knew. At that point, it was probably like, yeah, we know it's killing us, but we're all addicted to it, so we smoke everywhere still. I don't know. Somebody tell me if you were alive during that time. So Karen then learns that she... So she was trying to get time off that weekend to go see her kids and was having a hard time convincing somebody to switch shifts with her because she hadn't previously or like in advance asked for the time off. So she comes back and she learns that the management team thinks that she purposefully did something to make the plant shut down because they knew that she was trying to get the time off. She wanted the weekend off. She obviously didn't, but she's learning. She's starting to hear that they think that. And then we're kind of shown, we're shown the, them at work a lot and on the floor of the plant, like near the door that you would go to exit, like when you're done with your shift or for your break or whatever, there's this uh, like sensor type device mounted next to the door that workers are supposed to monitor themselves before leaving the floor. That's what they call it. Like you hold your hands up to it to, and it kind of reads if there's anything like if there's any contamination. And to see if they're hot, I guess. So we see a few times that Karen has to be reminded. She doesn't She doesn't do it. She doesn't really take it very seriously. They're like, come on, Karen, you got to monitor yourself. And she's like, she rolls her eyes. Okay. You know, she, so we're shown several times where she does that. And then sure enough, there's a scene where, again, like we see, they throw a little like impromptu. Well, I guess it's not impromptu because they had a birthday cake made. For their coworker Gilda, which wasn't allowed, they get caught doing it. It kind of makes a little bit of a mess. They're not supposed to have a cake on the floor, um, so Karen has to clean up. But they're like, they don't want her to do that on work time. So she should do it after her shift. So she's the only one there cleaning up. And then we do see her monitor herself, and she sets the alarm off. She's hot. This is the first time, first of three times that she sets an alarm on. So now she's starting to be like, okay, I'm a little, I'm, you know, over time, she's getting a little more interested. So she joins the committee, the union negotiation committee. The leader is Quincy and Morgan is also, I don't know, he's like one of the main union people. He's kind of always there. The three of them end up going to DC together to meet with the national level union leaders, Max and Paul. There's a really cute scene when they go to D.C. So they're paid for. Everything's paid for by like the National Union. Uh, so they fly to D.C. There's a really cute scene where she's served a meal on this plane. She inquires how much it costs, not knowing that it comes with the price of the ticket. It's a really cute scene like these showing us that these people have not flown on. One of them's taking pictures of the flight. It's really cute. But as a side note, I got to say, I kind of want to, I want to, I want the 1970s flying experience. It must have been pretty awesome because at that time, I'm imagining you can just show up at the airport like 30 minutes before your flight. You don't have to disrobe to go through security. You can smoke. No one's wearing their pajamas. Like people still dressed nice on planes. And apparently... You are even served a, not a snack, but a meal, a full meal on a flight. 
a short flight. Like I looked up, I'm like, well, how long is the flight from Oklahoma City to DC? Because it can't be very long. It's not. It's two hours and 45 minutes. She served a meal. I'm just saying. Okay, so they're in DC. There's clearly something going on. Like she and Paul have a thing off screen. Like we're not shown anything. We're just like we infer that something happened between the two of them. And then Drew sees a picture of the two of them, of Paul with his girlfriend outside of the hotel in D.C. And he was already starting to resent um, the amount of time that Karen is spending on all this union work. So this is not helping. Like, this isn't happening. But the way that he finds this out, the way that he learns this and is so of the time, I love it. Nostalgia, retroness. So upon their return, Quincy and his wife have Drew and Karen over uh, to show them via a slideshow their pictures from the trip. And that picture was in there. And Drew's like, oh, what the hell? They don't like get in a fight about it. He just has his arm around Karen. He sees that. And then he takes his arm off of her. So he, And then he sees that. And he's like, because he kind of knows her. And... He's already been, like I said, he's the resentment has been growing. This is not helping. Okay, so then they get home from this little picture viewing party. Um, they're pulling up the dirt road. They see Dolly unloading her brand new girlfriend's suitcases into the house. So now there's the four of them are living there. And the girlfriend does makeup. Like what she does for a living is she does. When we first meet her, Cher says, oh, she is like a beautician or something. But as it turns out, she does makeup at a funeral home. There's a really fun scene where she gives Dolly a makeover, but she uses the same makeup that she uses on dead people. So she looks ghostly. It's funny. And there's just some fun scenes of our trio in the kitchen, just kind of acting normal, giving like jabbing each other as you would. And so then Drew is finding out more and more about, you know, like the work that Karen is doing. He's hearing about that she's now tasked with obtaining evidence for our, for like a New York Times reporter, like not just a newspaper reporter, but a New York Times newspaper reporter combined. So this um, combined with him just seeing this picture of his girlfriend and someone else is growing resentment. He picks up and leaves after telling her like he packs up his things, moves out, they break up. So he's actually quit his job. There's a scene of them on the porch. He tries to get her to come with him. He says that he quit. He put in his notice at the plant. He wants her to go away with him. And she says, I can't quit now. I mean, she's but she's really in it. And that just shows like how dedicated she is to this, you know, uncovering this conspiracy that she thinks the plant is covering up. And then there's a beautiful touching scene on the porch swing of their house where, so we find out that Dolly's girlfriend left her to go back to her husband. And this kind of spurs jabbing and a fight with some mean things said on both sides between Karen and Dolly. And then they mend because they love each other. They're very good friends. They mend their friendship without words, really, or very little. As said, they're sitting on the swing together, and Meryl is just kind of holding Dolly. 
and just the little things they do like with their hands or like she you know is like kind of playing with her hair and it's just really sweet Meryl is singing a lullaby almost to her we get some singing from Meryl in this um that and then we'll get to an end scene where she sings too which is a little ironic considering now Meryl can sing and I think she sings in some movies but Cher is known for her singing it's just kind of funny anyway so I loved that scene. That's maybe my favorite scene of the movie. There's another one with Drew a little bit later that I love too, but that porch swing scene, say that a few times in a row, is it just shows us how much they love each other uh, because Karen's starting to lose all of her friends at this point at work because she's always taking notes about what's going on. And they're all just like... We don't want anything to come out about what the company's like, despite the fact that the company is putting all of their health in danger. Their concern is they want a job. They don't want to lose their jobs and they don't want to be associated with someone who's causing trouble and trying to uncover some stuff. So we see her then setting off the contamination alarm two more times after this. One of which we know her gloves had a hole in them in, in one of those instances. So a little fishy, right? She's seeing that they're trying to do away with her. So now the company after that, like this is the third time. So they send, the company sends like their remediation people over to her house to do readings and testings of everything that she's touched. They literally remove everything from the house, like wallpaper and everything. And everything that she has touched has super high readings. They continue to insist that she's doing this to herself. That's what their claim is. So she's now thinking, oh, my God, you guys are trying to kill me. Oh, my God, I'm going to die. I have cancer. I'm going to die. Um, and they're insisting that she did it to herself purposefully in order to hurt the company. So the scene at, their ha at the house, everybody's like outside and they take Dolly. They get a room somewhere for her to stay. Because and then Drew has already moved out. But they, because they're insisting this and they're like, well, look, we'll help you out monetarily. We'll find you a place to stay. But she would have to sign a document saying that she's doing this on purpose to hurt the company. So obviously she's not going to do that. But she's, she is scared of dying now. And there, there's a scene kind of in between there where uh, we see her and Drew make up because he now owns like an, an auto repair and towing company and she's like driving one night and hits a deer and he comes to tow her and this, so they've made up but he does have his own place now so now that she can't stay at her own house so now she goes and stays at his place with him and she's very she's just she's super afraid and so he's like that's okay you know no worries he kind of takes charge and he's like we'll all fly to los alamos to see real doctors he says so again our trio goes to los alamos which I think is New Mexico, and they're in Oklahoma. I'm not sure with what money they're doing this because these are people who don't um, don't have a lot of excess funds. So I'm not sure how they funded this trip. But we see them all kind of get some testing done at this hospital. Drew and Dolly are, we learn, at permissible, so to speak, levels. While Karen, on the other hand, does, um, she does have it in her lungs. And at very high levels, but they try to convince her. Like they, they can't really pinpoint. They're like, well, 
it could be 300% up or down such and such number. And she's like, uh, what? You know, like, that's not helpful. And so she is not convinced by these doctors um, because they're like, no, but it's okay. It's still an acceptable level of radiation. She doesn't believe them. And now she's like even more convinced to move forward with her reporter and gathering of the evidence that that's needed for this article to, to uncover the truth of this plant. So now we're at essentially the final scene of the movie, which the entirety of it, it's a beautiful, it's like, it's a beautiful, the way that it's shot and the entirety of it has the backdrop of Meryl Streep singing Amazing Grace, like a rendition of it. It's not like the standard version. So with that backdrop, we see her leaving like a union gathering at a cafe or something in town with folders. Like she's got like an armful of folders that we can assume are, is the evidence because she's leaving that meeting to go meet with the reporter who flew in from New York. We see her driving and a car very closely following her. The headlights are so bright that we see her really struggling to see. She's blinded by the headlights of the car behind her. And then we cut to her car has crashed. And she's dead inside. And then we get the film epilogue that reads, The precise circumstances of Karen's death are unknown. It is also not known whether she had any documents with her. None were found. An autopsy revealed a high level of the tranquilizer methoqualone and some alcohol in her bloodstream. Oklahoma police ruled her death a single car accident. A year later, the plant shut down. So that's the movie Silkwood. Now, there's a lot of stuff that I was reading for trivia, um, but good movie. Highly recommend. So, like I said, this is based on a true story. In 1979, the jury rendered a verdict of $10.5 million in damages to be paid to the Silkwood estate, essentially her kids, which was the largest amount of damages ever awarded for that kind of case at the time. But like a myriad of legal motions and appeals stretched that case into the 80s, the Circuit Court of Appeals eventually overturned the punitive damages portion of the district court verdict, but on further appeal in January of 84, the U.S. Supreme Court in a five to four decision, reversed the circuit court and reinstated the jury's findings of punitive damages. Ugh. Lots of back of ugh, what a nightmare. The Silkwood estate eventually settled for 1.3 million, even though they're awarded 1.5. I think, you know, that I think happens a lot. There's we just want to be over with this. We want to get something. Anyway. Meryl Streep had only two and a half weeks off between completing. Sophie's Choice, and starting this picture. Crazy, right? Now, I was talking about uh, Cher and her look. So apparently one of the first big tasks that Cher had to tackle when she arrived was getting like the right look for Dolly. What they started out with is now what we ended up with. So in the beginning, according to Cher, Dolly was written as a glamorous barrel writer. That kind of makes sense for Cher. For Cher. So they tried a screen test with that look, but Mike Nichols, the director, did not like it. He told her to wash her face 
wash her hair, and just let it dry flat to her head without doing anything to it. Then he had the costume designer, Anne Roth, began to dress her in dowdy clothes, (laughs) working hard to strip every trace of glamour from the usually picture-perfect star. She says they put her in awful chinos and that she had to, and they were, like, and she had, um, she had to put two pairs of jockey shorts underneath it to make her look heavier than she was. And I remember noting that one. Like, you can kind of see it. Yeah. Uh, she, with the new look, she stepped outside of her trailer and Kurt Russell was there and he said, what the fuck are you supposed to be? So she was warned, of course. So this is the look they're going with now for Cher. So she's like, Mike told her not to wear any makeup at all. He said he would do like a white glove test, make sure she was wearing any makeup and she said one time she cheated by uh curling her eyelashes but he caught her and he's like don't do it again my dear but so she got the message and yeah it's like i said it's such a stark difference because Cher is so known for being so glamorous and that's her trademark and just kind of being over the top so she says quote I was looking at the big picture. Everyone was trying not to laugh and doing a very good job of it. Mike was looking really pleased. That's perfect, he said. I couldn't believe it. My first real time in front of a camera in a big film. This was the way I had to look. I feel you, Cher. I would have been the exact same way. I'm not even like over the top glamour, but this is this was like her first big movie. And she, because she's known for being so glamorous, but just... My introduction to everyone is no makeup and yucky, dowdy clothes and my hair not done. I would have been the same way, Cher. Yeah. So then I also was reading that because this is based on a true story, you know, and sometimes movies come out, people, the real life people feel certain ways about it. So Drew Stevens, played by our everyman Kurt Russell, was Karen's real life boyfriend. He apparently loved the film and felt moved by it. However, Karen's parents and her former roommate, uh, whose name is actually Sherry Ellis, um, in real life, they must have changed the name, were unhappy with it. Her father believed that Karen was a whole lot smarter than they showed in the movie, while Ellis objected to Cher's depiction of Dolly, even though it wasn't based expressly on her. That's interesting. I can see if Cher was not truly the based on the real roommate like i can kind of see that but i thought they portrayed karen really well like very multifaceted and pretty smart i don't know you guys will have to let me know yeah now there's quite a bit that i was reading about the cast like our trio but especially share and merrill share and merrill so they both stated in interviews that they were secretly nervous about performing together on stream on screen um that but they did become really close friends and remain friends today they would both appear in the Farrelly brothers comedy stuck on you coincidentally both portraying themselves in the film but originally Cher said she was so nervous about meeting Meryl Streep for the first time she was quoted saying I thought it was going to be like having an audience with the Pope however Streep immediately put her at ease like hugging like threw her arms around her hugged her and she said she was just she's all communication and warmth and friendship with a great sense of humor so that was lovely to hear um that they got along so well they were kind of both nervous about working with the other 
And then they developed this friendship, which we will talk about here in a second, too. Um, but they, since they both received Oscar noms for this film, then in 1988, they were both nominated again, but in um, the same category for Best Leading Actress. So they were competing against each other for Moonstruck and Ironweed. Cher won. And Streep was the first to leap to her feet in gleeful applause as the audience gave her a standing ovation in her acceptance speech. Cher singled out Mary Louise Streep for thanks. So Meryl is just a nickname for Mary Louise. I didn't realize that until reading this. Sweet, right? So Nora Ephron also witnessed the friendship between those two and said that it really helped create a fun mood on the set. Because the subject matter of this film was so serious, um, they would do like shticks, voices, fake jokes or fake fights and jokes. And I, apparently they were just really funny. And Afron said, I can't overestimate how that friendship made it possible for Cher not to be wildly nervous. And it brought out a wonderful performance. Um, yeah, her being put at ease. They apparently like during the downtime of the filming were inseparable friends i guess they hung out you know after work or whatever whatever their version of after work drinks are but she, they said um, meryl said we hung out and drank plum wine ew after work that was her exact quote i thought that was cute um that was from a vanity fair article in 2010 she says Cher was really fun i was smitten by her openness both as an actress and as a person for a showgirl, there's not a phony bone in her body. I love that. I love hearing like tidbits about super famous people, especially iconic people like Cher and Meryl Streep that they seem they're just like real people. I love that. And then Cher told Joan Rivers on The Tonight Show that she was shocked when she was approached by Mike Nichols. I think this is hilarious. She was approached by Mike Nichols to act alongside this legend. Meryl Streep, and this was only her second movie ever. She said, you want me to start out going, you want me to start out going up against Meryl Streep? Shouldn't I start smaller, like with Suzanne Somers or something? I mean, nothing against, I don't think that's like a jab at Suzanne Somers, but just like the fact that Meryl Streep was like, had already just won two Oscars and is like living legend. Anyway, they both also, I'm not forgetting about our Kurt. Meryl and Cher got along well with Kurt Russell. And I think this is interesting the way... So Cher described working with Kurt like a bossy big, big... Like a bossy big brother that she adored. Russell said that working with Streep was one of the highlights of his career. She gives so much in a scene that it's hard to keep up with her. The big brother comment, the only reason I thought that was strange is because Kurt was the youngest of them and I think Cher was the oldest. But I think... I get what she's saying. I think she's like, oh, my big brother, that's kind of bossy, but I love him anyway, like that kind of a relationship. So this all comes out very clearly in their performances of the trio, as I call them. It's I can't give them enough credit. The scenes that they're in, you just you can't keep your eyes off of them. Um, in terms of setting, so it's set in Oklahoma. That's where the actual real life plutonium plant and events of the movie take place. But the Oklahoma governor was like, mm, can you please film somewhere else? I really don't want you to film this here. So they shot it in Texas and New Mexico instead. 
Now, this, the death scene that I talked about and like the, the epilogue title or the epilogue text that comes on, it could, I can see how that could be like a little bit confusing. And here's why. When the film was in post-production, Mike Nichols and editor Sam Osteen, they ran into some problems regarding the way that Karen's death was depicted. Because Kerr McGee, the company for which Silkwood worked, threatened legal action against the film if anything was portrayed that was not 100% factual, like about the plant parts, um, that, that story. So a scene where some minutiae about the headlights wasn't perfect, it was removed. So in the final cut, it wasn't as clear that someone was following her. Interesting, right? Now, this is the only movie where we'll get some Meryl Streep nudity. Did you guys know that? The one scene that was particularly difficult for her, apparently. So there's a scene where she flashes one breast to a coworker. So she just kind of, she just opens her shirt like this. Must not have been wearing a bra because, it, yeah. Anyway, it was just like a cute little thing she did. Um, so it's very clearly, she flashes one breast very clearly. Then there's another scene that it's in their room. It's a darkened room. She like gets out of bed and puts her shirt on. And is briefly topless in the mirror. Like her back is to us, but there's a mirror that we briefly see her topless. Every other film that has shown one of her characters nude has been performed by a body double. So she hated the scene. She hated doing it so much that she vowed to never do another one. Yeah. So she, she says that she's really sensitive about doing scenes like this. It's a gripe of hers. Um, she's like, it's just really bizarre and horrible thing to do in front of a crew. So that's Mer Meryl's take on it. So Silkwood, you heard it probably only here because this movie's so hard to find. But if you find it, you'll see Meryl Streep's boobs. Now, there's a bunch of movies. I guess there's this whole cycle of 1980s films about atomic bombs and nuclear warfare. I mean, obviously, this was a, anyway, this was a plutonium plant, but obviously the times nuclear warfare. So those movies, I'm not sure I've seen, I don't know if I've seen most of these, but I've heard of them anyway. And, and a few of them are pretty famous. So we have the China syndrome, Silkwood, Testament, Threads, War Games, The Day After, The Atomic Cafe, The Manhattan Project. Whoops, Apocalypse, Special Bulletin, Ground Zero, Barefoot Gen, Rules of Engagement, When the Wind Blown, Dead Man's Letters, Memoirs of a Survival, The Plutonium Incident, and The Chain Reaction. That's a lot of movies in that decade. Um, and so we talked about uh, Mike Nichols asking Cher to be in this, and it was the film that introduced her as a serious actress, and it led to some pretty big, amazing movie roles in the 80s. Mask from 1985. Oh, I love that movie. We have Sam Elliott in that too. Suspect from 1987. Moonstruck from 1987 as well. And that was where, yeah, she won the Oscar for that one. And The Witches of Eastwick, also from 1987. I don't think I realized all of those were from 1987. 
Perhaps I wrote them down wrong. That's a possibility. Um, love The Witches of Eastwick, too. Great movies, Cher. I kind of forget that she was in so many movies and that she won an Oscar. Yeah, Cher's great. Also, we have three films that Meryl Streep and writer Nora Ephron have made together. This one, Heartburn, and Julie and Julia. And Julie and Julia is one where Nora Ephron directed. So I usually just revel in all the casting what-ifs. I love that juicy kind of stuff. There's not a ton here. However, I did find this quite interesting, that Silkwood actually started off nine years prior in development at Warner Brothers as a possible project for Jane Fonda. Warner's dropped out when producer Buzz Hirsch was subpoenaed by an Oklahoma City judge to disclose the film's research documents. Eventually, the appeals court does rule in their favor. And so then ABC Motion Pictures started to revamp it as we now see it. So Dolly, I was reading that Lily Tomlin auditioned for her. I could see that, actually. She's really good. But that's really it for casting what ifs. And then if anybody is interested in this kind of stuff, there was a book uh, written in 1981 called Who Killed Karen Silkwood? And then in addition to this movie, Silkwood, there's a documentary series called History's Mysteries. That's a fun name. Uh, in 2000, there was an episode about it. And it, the episode was called Contaminated, the Karen Silkwood story. And then, like I mentioned, the China Syndrome from 1979 was very similar. It was about reporters of another nuclear power plant incident cover-up conspiracy. So very similar. And that one actually did have Jane Fonda in it, as well as Michael Douglas, who I love. Also, Jane's great, too. And then as I'm talking about this, if there was any other movies, more modern movies that maybe kind of seems viably like Silkwood, I'm wondering what, you, what are in your thoughts right now. Aaron Brockovich, anyone? A lot of parallels there, right? Um, and then there's a lot of other movies that have these vibes as well that, I don't know, I like this kind of thing. So I'm sure you guys have seen most of these, but other movies about like whistleblower, corporate cover-up, labor union, conspiracies based on true stories, like all of that kind of stuff. We have Norma Ray, North Country, Dark Waters, Milk, The Pentagon Papers, JFK, Nixon, The Post. All the President's Men, A Matter of Sex, and even Serpico, kind of all kind of having a similar vibe. So one last little tidbit that I think is wild in a bad way. Ugh, corporate greed, I can't stand it. So anyway, apparently Karen Silkwood's grave still emits enough radiation to set the Geiger counter clicking. Her grave. From 1974. She died in 1974. Her grave, six feet under, in a casket. Isn't that crazy, you guys? I cannot wait to hear who of you, have you seen Silkwood? Had you even heard of this story before? Please let me know. I definitely recommend you watch it, even if it's likely to be like a huge pain in your ass to get your hands on a copy. Hey, use that library of yours, folks. That's how I watched it. 
While I loved the 70s of it all and all of the wonderful chemistry among our main trio of Kurt, Merrill, and Cher, I don't want anywhere near a plutonium factory in Oklahoma. So I will gladly return to the present day reality. Until next time, be kind. Rewind. 